1 Corinthians chapter number 15 again tonight in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, before we begin our service, I'll need to get all the ushers to get together, and I need you to hand in your homework. Y'all have your homework, right? You have your homework? You got Some of you got it? I had two people hand it in early, and so they get A's for the class. Uh, since I hadn't seen any others, then I'm not sure. Uh, we'll have to grade on the curve, and uh, so I might be a little lenient. I'll have to ask Brother Godfrey what he does out there at West Coast, and if, he, if he's one of those uh, easy teachers, if he's just a hard, hard guy and said, this is the way it's got to be. I don't know. Which one is he? Uh, he's a hard one. So, okay, so that's what we'll be tonight. If you don't hand in your homework after the end of the, by the end of the class tonight, you get zeros. No, that's not the case. Do you remember what we talked about several weeks ago before the mission conference began? We ended up looking at a particular passage. Go with me, 1 Corinthians 15. Verse number 29, and we'll read down to verse number 34. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived, evil communication corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, the week before mission conference, we spent some time considering uh, hard passages in the Scripture. And I'd given you several things by way of Bible study, just some tools of Bible study, and invited you to spend a little time digging into this particular passage. And I'm speaking this particular passage, meaning verse number 29. Um, and we ended... Uh, our week that week with that verse number 25 and again I asked you the question uh, and we talked about Bible interpretation and and I asked the question what do we do when we come to hard to understand Bible passages what do we do with difficult passages and many times we can come to a passage of scripture and we read that passage and it does seem to be difficult uh, and it requires us to study when we come to things like this, do we ignore them and, uh, and do we just ignore that they're even there and just kind of like just act like it and just, just real quickly go past them? Do we skip them? Do we cast them aside? Or do we, when we come to these passages, does it force us, are we inclined to stop and study our Bibles? And when you come to passages such as this, it's a wonderful time, and I say all the time in any passage, but particularly situations that we're not sure we understand or we think we have a handle on, it's a good time just to stop there and do a little Bible study and so we might find out the truth. And really, Bible study is hard work. It's hard work. Uh, it, it's, uh, the Bible causes it, talks about those who labor in the Word. And, and, and really, that is sometimes. It is a, is a labor. But, but finding, you know, to me, it's like, you, you go out, and if you were, a, uh, these guys that used to, they would go out west and, and looking for gold. These, 
these folks that would go, what, what was that, prospectors? Is that the kind of, is that what these guys were? And they'd go out, and they would have to dig, and they would sit out in that hot sun all day long. And, 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 but yet, you know what, what kept bringing them back? A little nugget. It's that little nugget that'll keep you going. It's that word of God. It's something, a truth that's discovered, something that's found in the Bible that says it is worth the digging. It's worth the study. Search the scriptures so that we might know what the Bible says. I remind you, we mentioned the verse, 2 Timothy 2 and 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to show thyself approved. And not to be ashamed, in other words, those who don't study to show themselves approved, those who do not study to rightly interpret the Word of God, they are and should be ashamed because the Bible is so is written for us to know, not for us not to know. God's given us His Word. It's a love letter, it's been said, to God's people, to His church. So we are to study it, to rightly divide the Word of truth. Now, rightly dividing, rightly dividing, not wrongly dividing. Same thing. Not wrongly dividing. You can do that. That happens. Wrongly uh, dividing versus rightly dividing. And that, that's what we want to be on the right side of this. Now rightly dividing. Uh, the idea in that is to handle it correctly. Handle it correctly. To cut it straight in other words. Or handle the Bible correctly. Wrongly dividing is to handle it incorrectly. And a whole lot of people handle the Bible incorrectly. Now, it has to do with interpretation of the Scriptures. Rightly dividing, we must have a handle on the interpretation, the right interpretation of Scripture. Right interpretation so that we can rightly teach and rightly apply. Right interpretation so that we can rightly teach and rightly apply. Wrong interpretation leads to wrong application. Right interpretation leads to right application. So we want to be able to teach it rightly, uh, and we want to be able to apply it rightly. Rightly dividing, the, the next phrase there is rightly dividing the word of truth. This is huge. Rightly dividing, interpreting, interpreting correctly, handling it correctly, the word of truth. Now, what is this? This is the Bible. It's the word of God. Rightly dividing the truth. The word of God. Now, we have to understand this. Truth is something that's fixed. Truth is not, as one previous president says, uh, it's evolving. Uh, truth does not evolve when a culture Dissolves. Uh, truth does not change. Truth is something that's fixed. It's unchanging. Now for something to be true, it must exclude or rule out all false teaching in order for it to be true. If it includes false teaching, then it cannot be true by definition of truth. So again, by definition, truth and error... Or falsehood cannot coexist. 
The moment falsehood is introduced, truth is no longer true. A lie with a little bit of truth mixed into it is still a lie. And so it it, it no longer remains true. But when we think about the word of truth, it means it is fixed. It does not change. Now, you cannot mix a lie with the truth and it still remains the truth. A truth is... Cannot be a lie, nor can a lie be the truth. Seems to be a bit redundant, but that's true. You can't mix them. They're mutually exclusive of each other. Now, today society has tried to blur the lines between a lie and the truth. They tried to blur the lines. We hear it all the time. You just you, you pick up any newspaper. You listen to any uh, media out there, and they try to make the lie the truth. They try to turn the truth into a lie, and you're like, well, who do you believe? Well, sometimes that gets difficult if you're listening to the media these days. But when we come to truth, it's fixed. It's unchangeable. It's unalterable. It's unmoving. Truth, on the other hand, can be ignored Truth can be ignored, but it doesn't change the truth. You can come to an aspect of truth in the Word of God. You can ignore it, but it doesn't change the truth. This thing with genders today. Male and female, that's the truth. That's what the Bible says. You can ignore it, but it doesn't change the truth. You can dress it up in any way you want to dress it up, but it doesn't change the truth. Truth can be ridiculed, but it doesn't change it. Truth can be disobeyed. It can be rebelled against. But it doesn't change it. It's still truth. Now, rightly divide the word of truth. Now, this Bible is God's word. It's God's word, so therefore it is true. Could we we come to agreement on that tonight? I think so. We all in in this crowd, we we know this this is truth. This is God's word. It's settled forever In heaven. For all of eternity. It's been tried. It's been tested. And it's come forth true every single time. There are no contradictions in the word of God. And because this Bible is true. It is fixed. Again unchangeable. It's unalterable. It is unmoving. Because it's the word of truth. It does not have lies. It does not contradict itself. Anywhere. If we come to a passage of Scripture and it says that contradicts this. The Bible's not wrong. You're wrong in your interpretation. Every single time. The Bible does not contradict. Why? Because it's the word of truth. It's factual and it's fixed for all of eternity. Past, present, and future. So a fixed truth. Think about it. It's a word of truth. So a fixed truth. This Bible also has a fixed right interpretation now we got all kinds of people that all kinds of denominations and cults and everything and they come to the bible and they they come up with an interpretation that match the bible the bible being the word of truth and by definition truth is fixed so there has to be a right definition because truth is always fixed the definition must be as well so it's, in our, it's incumbent upon us in our Bible study to, 
to discern the right definition. And we mentioned a couple weeks ago, and I gave you some tools in which you could do that. I encourage you to go back and listen to the tape. I won't take time to go through it again tonight, but some very specifics there. So the purpose of Bible study is to bring us to right interpretation. Wrong interpretation. The wrong question to ask when we come to interpretation is we ask this. This is the wrong question to ask. What does that verse or that portion of Scripture mean to you? Wrong. What does that verse or that portion of Scripture mean to you? When left to whatever it means to you, it can mean anything. It depends on who you ask. What does it mean to you? You get an answer. What does it mean to this person? You can get another answer. Because you and I, when it's up to us, to what it means to us, we interpret it, people interpret it based upon their assumptions, based upon their feelings about a particular matter, their opinions. Everybody's got an opinion, right? Um, Preconceptions, our backgrounds. And when you add those things into what does the Bible mean to you, you can make the Bible say anything you want to say based upon those particular things. You see, when we ask the question, what what does that verse or what does that passage mean to you? That makes us the authority over the Scriptures. You see where I'm going with that? It makes us the authority over the Scriptures. Now, what does it passage mean to you makes it subjective it's subject to our notions our opinions and our feelings this is what I think it means now that can come up with any sort or manner of interpretation but again truth is fixed so we got to have the right interpretation that's what we're looking for in our bible study the right question to ask is this not what does it mean to you But what does that verse or that portion of Scripture say to you? Two different things. Two different ways to look at it. Not what does it mean to you, but what does it say to you? This is seeing the Bible objectively. This gets me out of the way and allows the passage to say exactly what God intended it to say. Instead of me reading into the Bible what I think due to my feelings and how my presuppositions, I'm reading the Bible now to see what the Bible has to say to me. You know, it really doesn't matter what I think about it. It really doesn't matter what my opinion is about it. What matters is what God says about a particular situation. That's what matters. So it gets me out of the way. This makes the Bible... Or God's word have authority over me. The other way, I become the authority over the Bible. Because this is what I want to say. When we come to the Bible looking for right interpretation. To study the Bible. To rightly divide the word of truth. With an objective. Looking at it objectively. And taking ourselves out of the way. It allows the Bible to have the authority over me. It's no longer what you think the Bible means. That's our interpretation of what we think it says. It's now God's interpretation. It's what he means and it's what he says. 
And so you look at, you come to a passage of scripture, it cannot have multiple interpretations. You ask somebody, well, what does that verse mean to you? You may get all sorts of interpretations. And because truth is fixed, it cannot have this. It's fixed, so there can only be one interpretation. Now, there could be multiple applications to the right interpretation. The Holy Spirit, you can, the Holy Spirit has a way of taking a Bible passage and dealing in the heart of people differently. And that happens in a service, and the Word of God is preached, and the Holy Spirit can, interp- can, can apply that Word to your heart in a way, and you can apply it to another heart in a different way. That's true. But there's still one interpretation. And that's what we're looking for when we come to Bible study. Rightly dividing the word of truth is studying the scriptures so that we know what, the, what God says, what the Bible says. We want to know what he says, not what we think he says. Are you with me on that? We want to know what he says, not what we think he says. So we're looking for right interpretation of what God says, not wrong interpretation as to what we think. Now, when we come to verse number 23, verse number 23, and I'll ask you guys to drop your video here, drop the screen, and we're going to play a video here in a second. Verse number 29, did I say 23? Verse number 29 has been wrongly used multiple, multiple, multiple times. It's been wrongly used. Wrong interpretation, the wrong interpretation of one verse, verse number 25 has led thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people to hell. And it's leading thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people to hell tonight. And I'm speaking specifically of the LDS or the Mormon church. As of recent studies, there's estimated to be almost 17 million members of the Mormon church worldwide. 17 million. And this one verse is leading people to hell. Show the video, please. He further taught that baptism was required to enter the kingdom of heaven. But what about people who die without being baptized? Jesus showed his commitment to obey all of God's commandments when he was baptized. He further taught that baptism was required to enter the kingdom of heaven. But what about people who die without being baptized or even knowing about Jesus? How can they be saved? Thankfully, God is loving and has provided a way for everyone to receive all of his blessings, even after death. In the temple, baptisms and other essential ordinances are performed in behalf of those who have died without the opportunity. The apostle Paul spoke of baptism for the dead in the Bible and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints continue that same practice in temples today. Here's how it works. We study our family history to discover names of people who have died without being baptized. We are then baptized in behalf of those ancestors in the temple. This service for others is offered in love, and because we believe that life continues after death, we also believe that those who have died are aware of the ordinances and can choose whether to accept them. Baptisms for the dead are an opportunity to remember and serve others. It helps us understand and know the Savior better, as we do for others what they cannot do for themselves. One Bible verse 
People are being baptized for as proxy baptism for others who have died. And did you get it? Who did not have the opportunity. And then even after they've died, you look through your ancestry and find somebody that you want to be baptized for. And then even after that, they have the opportunity to choose whether they accept your baptism for them. Now, did, do you see how important Bible interpretation is here? It is amazing. That teaching has, in what we, and this is from the Church of Mormons, this is a church of uh, LDS Church. And by the way, we were up there this summer, and I thought, I thought when we were up in that part of the world, we flew into Salt Lake City. And I said, you know, I, I just will spend the night, a couple of days in Salt Lake City just to see the sights. And then we went on up the road and we said, ah, forget Salt Lake City. But uh, it was too pretty up in uh, the other part, up in uh, Wyoming and so on. But we came back down and had to fly out. And so that night we had a number of hours. And so we'd said, let's just ride around downtown Salt Lake. Let's go see the temple. Well, it was, it was something to see. It's quite closed off. But can I tell you, my heart was broken. My heart was broken. Because here's an entire city, an entire city in multiple blocks built around a false cult. Sending people to hell. It broke my heart. I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to step foot on the ground of it. And we didn't. I didn't want to go inside that thing. It broke my heart. This is a damnable heresy. Um, and there are multiple in that, pa- in that video that we saw. And it's built upon the interpretation of one verse. Verse number 29. Now. Verse number 29 does not teach proxy baptism. At all. It does not teach baptismal regeneration at all. Church of Christ and those others that would hold to that. So what does verse 29 teach? Let me, let me just also say at this point. When you begin to build your doctrine off one verse of scripture. You're already on. Not, I'm not going to say shaky ground. You're not even ground at all. For the Apostle Paul to teach this out of verse number 29, proxy baptism, you got you got to take a penknife and cut out all the rest of the Bible where he speaks about salvation by faith. We, one part of Bible interpretation is this. We come to Bible interpretation, and there's some things that are very clear. We can know what it does not mean. You may have questions, what does this possibly mean? But we can know for sure what it does not mean. It does not mean those things I just mentioned. Because it's contrary to all the Bible. Proxy baptism is, again, taught nowhere in the Bible. And you never build your doctrine off one or, or build any, you support any doctrine off one verse alone. Let's just throw in a few here. You'll see what I'm saying. For by grace are you saved through faith. Is that not of yourselves? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Ye must be born again. 
that's pretty conclusive. You may not understand what this one says, but boy, you can sure get the clear sense of what those say. So when we come to Bible interpretation, we can rule out some things right off the bat because we know it's not saying this. We know it's not saying that. Cults build, cults build their false doctrine on one passage and they, with the ignorance or they ignore all the others. In verse number 29, Paul is picking up or resuming an argument for the resurrection that he left off back in verse number 19. He's picking up an argument. Now, here's a, here's a great example that, that we must, we must take note of Bible context in, interpretation. You have to take note of the context of what's being said. Context makes the unclear clear. Context will often make the unclear clear. So let's put verse 29 in context and make it clear. Now, in order to do that, we got to go back to, up to what Paul began discussing from verses 12 to 19. In verse number 12, Paul begins giving reasons and making statements for the proof of the resurrection. Look at verse number 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul here in verses 13 through 19, he's addressing those who say he didn't come up out of the grave. He begins making some statements to address that particular crowd. Paul is answering those who say there's no resurrection. So now let's read the verses 13 through 19. Some of you say there's no resurrection. But verse 13, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain? Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because he hath testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Look at verse number 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. In other words, if the dead rise not, Christ is still dead. Verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And so in verse number 20, he's giving this argument. And now in verse number 20 through 28, Paul leaves off giving these proofs of resurrection. And he adds more information. In verses 20 through 28, I won't go through and read all of those, but it's almost like a a parenthetical. Paul almost puts a a paragraph inside of a paragraph. And he's talking about a subject. We do it all the time. You'd be talking about something, and, and so we're going along telling a story, and all of a sudden, we throw in an illustration here. It doesn't mean we totally left off, but we come back and pick up the story. We do it all the time. It's like Paul, this is what he's doing here. So from verses 20 to 28, Paul leaves off his giving of the proofs and answering those who say Christ has not risen. 
given the proofs of the resurrection. And for the next eight verses, from 20 to 28, he begins dealing with Christ being the first fruits of them that slept. Well, those that slept, again, we've already talked about that. Another false doctrine, those that sleep, soul sleep. There are people all around us that teach soul sleep. And these people are dead. How many times has he mentioned death in this passage? Dead, 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 dead. Them that are asleep. So he begins talking about Christ being the first fruits of them that have died. He deals in verses 20 through 28 with the fact that all in Adam die, and in Christ, all are made alive. He mentions the order of the resurrection. In verse number 24, he talks about the end that will come. In verse number 26, he talks about the destroying of death. In verses 27 and 28, he adds the eternal. He talks about the eternal kingdom of God. So in verses 20 through 28, Paul is... It's Paul's way of inserting extra information into the discussion. Are you following me? Yes or no? Paul is inserting more information into the, into the discussion. And then in verse number 29, Paul goes back and he picks up his conversation that he was dealing with. He left off out of verse number 19. And it's clear. It's in context. He goes back and picks it up. He now picks up where he left off out of verse number 19. Let's look at the verse. 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, go back to verse number 16 and see if you can pick up a phrase. For if the dead rise not up, uh, rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, you're yet in your sins. He's giving these examples. And he's, he's talking about the dead. If Christ, if there's no raising of the dead, then Christ is not raised. So now verse number 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Now who's the dead there? Jesus Christ. He, the discussion is Christ has not risen. If this is the case, if this is what you're saying, then all these things are the case. Then he comes back after adding the other information. He says, he starts dealing with it again. Then why are we baptizing? Why are we going on baptizing for not the dead, but for a dead Christ? He's already just said out of verse number 19, if we believe there's, we're hanging on to this resurrection, we're of all men most miserable. So why are we carrying on this way if there's no resurrection? Verse number 20, 29 is not a proof text for proxy baptism. Verse number 29 is a continued argument for the resurrection. Paul preached and he practiced baptism by immersion. Not as a means of salvation, but as a step of obedience after salvation. Paul made it clear. In Romans chapter 6, baptism is a picture of what Christ did for us. Dead to sin, buried, raised to walk in newness of life. This is a picture of identification with Christ. A public proclamation of identification. Now today... When we go through the baptismal waters, I, think, I feel like we've lost so much of the sense of what it really means to be baptized. You talk to people today that are living in the world and you ask them about their salvation. Oh, I've been baptized. 
I've been baptized a bunch of times. I have no idea what baptism is. And even I, I think sometimes when people get saved, that's why we never baptize anyone unless we've spent some time dealing with what baptism really is. But for those people in that day, that outward proclamation was a severing of an old way of life and an old way of living and a taking on or a complete living for a new way of life. It was a public proclamation. I'm leaving all that. I'm leaving Judaism. I'm leaving the false cults. I'm leaving all of these things and I'm going with Christ and I want everybody to know about it. And it meant something. It meant something. And by the way, when Christians were born again in the New Testament, what did they do? They got baptized. And I never understand it why people who make a a profession of faith, just you can't get them through the baptismal waters. It's like we're going to drown you or something. The Bible says you go and preach the gospel, baptizing them. Winning them and baptizing them. The baptism does not bring salvation, but it's a public proclamation, identification with Christ. Paul is saying that, is saying why we are baptizing. He's, he comes back to the argument, if, there, if Christ is dead, why are we baptizing? Why are we picturing? Why are we proclaiming living a new life from a Christ who's dead? Why are we doing this? Why are we continuing In fact, Christ himself is dead. And if Christ is not risen, then we have no hope at all. Paul's argument goes like this. Why are we baptizing if Christ is dead? Why are we soul winning if Christ is dead? Why are we doing this if Christ is dead? Verse number 30. The argument continues on. Why stand we in jeopardy every hour? So he asks the question. Why are we risking our lives moment by moment, consistently, continually for a dead man? Why are we doing this? He goes on to verse number 31. I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul said, look, I I, I rejoice in that you're saved. But I want you to understand, he says, I die daily. I die daily. Why do I die daily? And the, and the idea there is why do I suffer so? Why am I looking to be killed by the Jews? Why do I put my life in jeopardy for the cause of a dead man? Why would I do this? Verse number 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. I invite you to go back and we won't have time tonight. And if I wish we had the time. But Acts chapter number 19 I think it is. And where they're brought to the theater, the Christians. And Paul says, I'm going in the theater. And they said they had brought uh, some other Christians in. And so it's at Ephesus. And, and, and the theater, remember, Christians are torn apart. Uh, they're, they're put in these places where lions and bears would, would tear them apart and eat them for the entertainment of the pagan crowds as they watch and cheered for such a thing. And Paul is saying, why in the world? Maybe Paul was put in that position. But why in the world would I do this? Or why in the world would anyone else do this for a dead man? If Christ be not raised. What advantage is it me if Christ is dead? Verse number 33. 
Be not deceived. Any evil communication. Corrupt good manners. He comes back to this thought. Be not deceived by resurrection deniers. Be not deceived by proxy baptism. Be not deceived by baptismal regeneration. Be not deceived by pedo-baptism. The Catholics, the Lutherans, and others try to teach. Be not deceived by the deniers. Don't believe their evil communications. And boy, they sure are communicating. Loud and clear. Verse number 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. What a convicting, what a powerful verse. Boy, I, I, we could just spend a lot of time just trying to unpack that. But, but I, 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 all, I, all I'll say about it is Paul comes back to it and he says, don't be deceived. Stand for righteousness. Stand for what's right. Stand for Christ. Interpretation matters. Our Bible, your Bible study matters. Rightly dividing the word of truth. It makes all the difference in the world. We spent two weeks dealing with this subject. We'll move on next week. Let's bow our hearts together in prayer.